Thank you very much, band. I, I appreciate you very much. Um, all right, well, we are uh, in the gospel, uh, we are in Genesis as, uh, still through the lectionary text. We decided to go through the Genesis tract a few weeks ago. Um, as you remember, the last two weeks uh, have been rough stories. I mean, real rough stories, right? Last week, the roughest story, my least favorite story in Scripture, uh, the binding of Isaac. Uh, it's just a disturbing, disturbing Old Testament story. If you weren't here, um, I would love for you to go back and listen to that talk, not because I did anything uh, amazing with it, but because I learned some things last week that really helped me in regards to that story, and I think they'd be helpful to you as well. Um, but the good news is today that uh, there's nothing quite that disturbing happening in our Old Testament text, which is, which is uh, good news, right? Um, I want to do something a little, a little different. I don't even know if we've ever done this before. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read like basically an entire chapter uh, to you guys today, and we're going to kind of talk through the story and then talk about it a little bit. And I know that's a little daunting, but instead of putting the Scripture on the screen like we normally do, uh, I'm going to do something that uh, is, is just going to blow your minds. I'm going to ask you to actually grab a physical Bible out of the actual pew in front of you and open it up. And I think, we're, I think page 18 is where uh, Genesis 24 starts. And uh, there's no uh, sacrificing of human beings in this one, uh, no you know, casting out of your children into the wilderness. Uh, this is just a classic boy meets girl, they fall in love uh, story, or at least as close to that as the weird Bible that we have <laughs> gets to that kind of story. Um, and so I, I want to kind of read through it. We'll stop a couple points and talk about it, just kind of uh, get a little backdrop for you and help you understand the text. And I know it's a good bit of reading, uh, but then we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, and I'm very tempted to walk around right now, but, but I, I need you to know that earlier when I came to set up my notes right before the service, I got to the top and then half rolled my ankle just trying to get from there to here. And my, my birthday is in a couple weeks. I'm turning 49. I'll be honest, the fact that I'm now at four steps is dangerous age is a little uh, disturbing to me. Uh, and, you know, I want to walk around, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm hurting myself here. So we, we are in the story of Isaac and uh, Rebekah. And you remember uh, last week the story, of course, was <clears throat> of the binding of Isaac. It is when uh, Abraham uh, is told to uh, go three days to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his only, uh, only remaining son, the other son they've already cast out. The only remaining son, the, the son of promise, the one that God has said he's going to produce nations through. And Abraham goes and he uh, sets to do that, right? And what we, one thing, the main thing we talked about last week is that uh, it is my belief uh, that Abraham was supposed to argue. Uh, he doesn't say anything. Uh, and God gives him three days to go someplace. And all this time, and then at the last second, the angel stops him from murdering his own son, provides the ram, and then we see that a lot of dominoes fall from that point on. No one in Abraham's family ever lives together again. Isaac is a diminished character. God never speaks to Abraham again after that point. There's a lot of fallout from what happens there. So maybe while he certainly demonstrates his commitment to God, I'd say that's commitment. Uh, he also demonstrates a lack of understanding of who God really is, character-wise, right? So that was what we talked about last week. And now we're getting into the story of Isaac at this point. Abraham is getting ready uh, to die. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, and, and so as we're getting into this part of the text, Isaac is the featured character in the sense of they talk about the Old Testament as going through these generations of men as the patriarchs, Right? Uh, part of what we'll talk about next week, I, as I would, I would argue this section of the story is a lot more about a matriarch than a patriarch. Isaac is, again, a very diminished character. It says later on in Genesis 31 that uh, God is the fear of, of Isaac. 
as opposed to just the God of Isaac, God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, which you can understand given what just happened with him. Um, and so he's a little bit diminished, and he's very wounded by the end of this text because his mother is, is, has died as well in the chapter before this. But we're going to see kind of this very kind of methodical thing that happens here in, in God's kind of hand in it. And it's just kind of an interesting story that I, that I wanted to just read the whole thing instead of uh, the, the lectionary just grabs these like few different verses, and I don't feel like it gives the whole story. So uh, we may regret it, but here we go. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 24, starting in verse 1, says this. As the days went by and Abraham became older, the Lord blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to the oldest servant of his household, uh, who was in charge of everything he owned, put your hand under my thigh. By the Lord God of heaven and earth, give me your word that you won't choose a wife for my son from among the Canaanite women among whom I live. Go to my land and my family and find a wife for my son Isaac there. Let's stop for just a second. So uh, God has kept God's promise. Abraham is a very scattered character. He is not the best dude. He sells his wife off a couple times, passes her off as a sister to protect himself. He almost sacrifices his son. He's uh, not necessarily the guy you want to invite over for Thanksgiving dinner all the time, but God has made a promise. God has remained faithful. At this point, he goes to his most trusted servant, and he says, the first thing you may have noticed there, put your hand under my thigh. Now you're thinking, well, is that like a euphemism for something? That's a euphemism for putting your hand under another man's thigh. Uh, it's just as weird as it sounds, right? This is a way of making a commitment back in those days that thankfully in the hot Mississippi summers we have abandoned in our culture. And it is a way of making a promise upon basically someone's lineage, right? <laughs> that which is most precious to them, if you will say. The, yeah, okay, well, I won't, no more than that. But, um, so it is an awkward, but uh, it is, I don't know, cross your heart and hope to die, pinky promise, something along those lines, uh, but more gross. And so that's what's happening here. And then he says, now Abraham is in the land that one day is promised. He wants him to go back to his family's land and find a wife there instead of among the foreigners. Isn't that a little bit uh, racist or ethnophobic or whatever? Yes, yes it is. Um, and it, what's preferable is that they go find a relative, which is a whole other fun thing that's in Scripture. You just, you know, marry cousins and stuff. So it says this, verse 5. The servant said to him, what if the woman doesn't agree to come back with me to this land? Shouldn't I take your son back to the land you left? Abraham said to him, Be sure you don't take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's household and from my father's land, who spoke with me and who gave me his word, saying, I will give this land to your descendants. He will send his messenger, or angel it might say in your uh, translation in front of you, in front of you, and you will find a wife for my son there. If the woman won't agree to come back with you, you will be free from this obligation to me. Only don't take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the master Abraham's thigh and gave him his word about his mission. So do not take my son back there. Right? God has moved us from there to here. Abraham has left his entire family to go to the place that's promised to him. I don't want my son going back there. He may want to stay there and abandon the promise that God has given us. So go there, find, uh, find a wife for him. And Abraham says, look, there's going to be an angel preceding you there. Now, we'll never actually see this angel or hear from this angel. This is just kind of Abraham's confidence uh, in the situation. Verse 10, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and all of his master's best provisions, set out and traveled to Nahor's cities in Aram Naharim. He had the camels kneel down outside the city at the well in the evening when the women came out to draw the water. So at the well in the evening when the women came out to draw the water. So culture back then, 
Even though it's manual labor, seems like maybe it's something that the dude should be doing uh, out of chivalry. It was part of a woman's job and expectation that they're going to go out to the well and get the water. They'll either go early in the morning when it's not hot or later in the evening, right? They never go in the middle of the day. That's part of the situation in John 4 where uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well. That's how you know she's an outcast because it's in the middle of the day and she's there by herself, right? So the, he's going out to the well. A cliche throughout Scripture is that guys meet their wives at wells, right? That's just, that's, that is the singles bar of ancient Palestine. That is where you... Uh, swipe left and right. Is that how it works? I don't know, whatever. I'm old. I've been married a long time. I didn't have to do any of those uh, apps, but this is where you go find the ladies. This is where they're going to hang out. It's ladies' night at the well, so that's where he goes. Uh, verse 12. He said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make something good happen for me today and be loyal to my master Abraham. I will stand here by the spring while the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. When I say to a young woman, Hand me your water jar so I can drink. And she says to me, drink, and I will give your camel's water too. May she be the one that you've selected for your servant Isaac. In this way, I will know that you've been loyal to my master. So this is the first time in Scripture that somebody, and this is a, a nameless servant, it's the first time in Scripture that someone has made a request of God for a sign like this. Every other time angels talk, God's talked, whatever, yes, yes, we do what you want. Uh, this is the first time, I believe, unless I'm wrong, if you find it, let me know. I think it was the first time where someone says, hey, God, I'm going to need this from you, right? And so uh, when I ask for water, they're going to say, here's water, and I'll give water for your camels. Even before he finished speaking, verse 15, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, but you all knew all that, uh, was coming out with a water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very beautiful, old enough to be married, and hadn't known a man intimately. She went down to the spring, filled her water jar, and came back up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Give me a little sip of water from your jar. She said, Drink, sir. Then she quickly lowered the water jar with her hands and gave him some water to drink. When she finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw some water for your camels too, till they've had enough to drink. She emptied her water jar quickly to the watering trough, ran to the well again to draw water, and drew water for all of the camels. Stop there for a minute. Again, he says, God, let this happen. I'll ask for water. She says, yes. And she says, she'll give water to my camels. Rebecca comes up. She says, yes. And I'll draw water for your camels. And then she starts going down to the well to fill the trough for all the camels. Now, something you should know here that, that we don't know, but the original hearers of this would understand. He's got 10 camels with him. Camels, after a journey, can drink, uh, stuff I read this week said, anywhere from 10 to 20 gallons each, no problem. You are talking about 100 to 200 gallons of water that Rebecca is going running back and forth and, uh, to, in order to help out these camels. So not only uh, does she do the things that the servant requested, uh, she's also uh, in like CrossFit or something. I don't know how she's doing it, but it's, it's, it's intended to be an impressive act, right? This is one of those things where not only is she beautiful, she's the right age, all these other things, like she's a stud, right? She's doing something amazing here when she does this. Verse 21, the man stood gazing at her, wondering silently if the Lord had made his trip successful or not. I'm not sure why he doesn't get that this is the one yet. This seems like a pretty good sign at this point, but he's still wondering. As soon as the camels had finished drinking, uh, 12 hours later, however long it takes to get that many gallons, uh, the man took out a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two gold bracelets for her arms weighing 10 shekels. He said, and this is, this is nice swag here. This is good stuff, right? Uh, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? 
She responded, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, who is the son of Milcah and Nahor. She continued, we have plenty of straw to feed the camels and a place to spend the night. The man bowed down and praised the Lord. So now he realizes this is the one, right? Bless the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who hasn't give up, given up his loyalty and faithfulness to my master. The Lord has shown me the way to the household of my master's brother. So now he is recognizing that God uh, is doing the very thing that he requested for God to do. Uh, young woman ran and told her mother's household everything that had happened. Rebecca had a brother named Laban. Laban will come in uh, later in Genesis as well, as many of you know. And Laban ran to meet that man outside by the spring when he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. I love that. He saw, he saw all the bling. <laughs> he saw all the gold. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to go talk to this guy. Heads out there, right? He's, whether or not he's a genuine believer right now or he's just nobody's idiot, uh, he heads out. Um, uh, and when he heard his sister Rebecca say, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man who was still standing by the spring with the camels. Laban said, come in, favored one of the Lord. Why are you standing outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man entered the house when Laban unbridled the camels, provided straw and feed for them, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him, and set out a meal for him. And so this is an act of hospitality. This is what was expected in that culture. Uh, this is a big part of what God expects of God's people. Uh, they're already calling, he's already calling him the favored one of the Lord, of Yahweh, which indicates that back at Abraham's home, they are followers of Yahweh now, which is actually significant uh, because that's, that, there's very few of these at this point. And they're, and they're showing the kind of hospitality they're supposed to show. The man said, I won't eat until I've said something. Laban replied, say it. The man said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has richly blessed my master, has made him a great man, and has given him flocks, cattle, silver, gold, men, servant, men servants, women servants, camels, and donkeys. My master's wife Sarah gave birth to a son from a master in her old age, and he's given him everything he owns. My master made me give him my word. Don't choose a wife for my son from the Canaanite women in whose land I am living. No, instead go to my father's household and to my relatives and choose a wife for my son. I said to my master, the woman wouldn't come back with me. He said to me, the Lord whom I've traveled with everywhere will send his messenger or his angel with you and make your trip successful. And you will choose a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's household. If you go to my relatives, you will be free from your obligation to me. Even if they provide no one for you, you will be free from your obligation to me. This is one of those things where to me, it's interesting that he also included that portion. This is bad uh, negotiating. Right? You don't let them know, like, hey, my job is done here. You know, like, I, I'm free now. I've done whatever I need to do. He lets them know that part, which to me is interesting. And later on, we'll see where Rebecca has, has a voice in this whole thing, which is not altogether usual in that culture either. Uh, today, I arrived at the spring, and I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you wish to make the trip uh, I'm taking successful, when I'm standing by the spring and the young woman who comes out to draw water, and to whom I say, please give me a little drink of water from your jar. And she responds, drink, and I will draw water for your camels too. May she be the woman the Lord has selected for my master's son. Before I finished saying this to myself, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder, went down to the spring to draw water, and I said to her, please give me something to drink. She immediately lowered her water jar and said, drink, and I will give your camels something to drink too. So I drank, and she also gave water to the camels. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore him. I put a ring in her nose and bracelets on her arms. I bowed and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me in the right direction to choose the granddaughter 
of my master's brother for his son. So he just recalls, this is one of those people that can't leave any detail out of a story. He probably could have summed it up and made it a little more interesting. Not a great storyteller, but he covers everything, right? Now, if you're loyal and faithful to my master, tell me. If not, tell me, so I will know where I stand either way. Laban and Bethuel both responded, this is all the Lord's doing. We have nothing to say about it. Here's Rebecca right in front of you. Take her and go. She will be the wife of your master's son, just as the Lord said. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed low before the Lord. And that right here is where uh, maybe some of you are getting a little uncomfortable. Like it feels like they just kind of gave a girl away here, right? Uh, and that's because they just gave a girl away here. Um, this is part of the culture. Uh, it's uncomfortable. Thankfully, it's not something we're doing anymore. Uh, but this is, this is kind of the way it works. Although, again, if we keep listening, you'll see that Rebecca ends up, and we'll talk a lot more about this next week, Rebecca takes way more of a commanding role in her story than you might think a woman in her time and place would, would typically do. The servant brought out gold and silver and jewelry and clothing and gave them to Rebecca. To her brother and to the mother, he gave the finest gifts. He and the men went with him and ate and drank and spent the night. So the dowry, here's all that happens in that situation. When they got up in the morning, the servant said, See me off to my master. Her brother and mother said, Let the young woman stay with us no more than ten days, and after that she may go. What are they doing right here? Are they trying to stall? Are they trying to negotiate for more stuff? Not entirely sure. Maybe they're just suddenly realizing that the person they love is going to leave. Not really sure what the intent is here, but they say, let's just, just pause. Let's just wait a few days here, right? But he said to them, don't delay me. The Lord has made my trip successful. See me off so that I can go to my master. They said, summon the young woman and let's ask her opinion. It's a pretty poignant thing. That doesn't happen a lot uh, in this time and place. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Now, one thing to realize here, that little phrase, I will go, puts Rebecca squarely in the tradition of Abraham. In fact, more so than Isaac, and again, we'll talk more about this next week, she starts reenacting kind of the Abraham story. She's the one who says to God, I will leave my family and I will go in order to help, the, you know, in order to create this new land and this new people and, this, uh, and carry out this promise that you have. So she's very much living into uh, kind of Abraham's calling. It's a very interesting thing that's happening here, uh, at least to me, a nerd. She said, I will go. So they sent off their sister Rebecca, her nurse, Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca, saying to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousand. May your children possess their enemy's city. Rebecca and her young women got up, mounted the camels, followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now Isaac, remember he's just lost his mother. Now Isaac has, had come from the region of Beer Lahai Roy, uh, Beer Lahai Roy, and had settled in the arid southern plain. Now, Bir Lahai Roy is also the place, if you remember back, when Hagar ran away from Sarah and Abraham. She ended up at the well in this place, and that's when uh, she heard from God, and she gave God a name, first person to give God the name, and that, that name is God hears me, God listens. This is where, for some reason, now Isaac has gone to the same place that Hagar went when she was bereft and lost, right? One evening, Isaac went out to inspect the pastor, while staring, he saw, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca stared at Isaac. She got down from the camel. A lot of people in the Hebrew think this says she fell off the camel, is what this is. And so she stared at him, fell off the camel. This is the equivalent of, uh, 
Looney Tunes, uh, when the, whatever it is, whatever that big cat thing is, see the, sees the girl he likes and does the ooga, ooga, you know, loses his mind kind of thing. I mean, it's roughly, eh, that may be an over, over-translation, but it's roughly kind of what happens here. Like, she, she sees Isaac. When she sees Isaac, you know, giddy up kind of thing. So it falls off the camel, which is now the phrase I will use whenever I see someone fall in love with someone else. You've fallen off the camel for that guy, haven't you? Uh, and said to the servant, who is this man? Now, it doesn't say, that's not the tone necessarily, but that's how I read it. Uh, who is this dude? Uh, who is this man walking through the pasture to meet us? The servant said, he's my master. So she took her headscarf and covered herself. This is like her realizing that this is the person she's supposed to marry. She likes what she sees. She then goes through all the decorum of like what you would normally go through in this moment in that culture. The servant told Isaac everything that had happened. Thankfully, he doesn't repeat it all like he did earlier. Verse 67, Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent. He married Rebekah and loved her. So Isaac found comfort after his mother's death. And so he takes her as a wife, and it says he loved her. And you should know that that is, I mean, that sounds common for us, right? You're getting married. Of course, we love each other. We're getting married. That's why we're getting married. That is not a given in this culture and time. In fact, this is the only place thus far in Scripture, I feel like, that really hits this point. Like, this is a love story for these two. And for a time when Isaac, almost killed by his father, loses his mother, is, you know, wandering, and at this point he's probably about 40 years old, which is a little too old for still being single if he's supposed to be the child of promise. He's in a bad place. And then Rebecca becomes the source of comfort and love for him, right? Um, I'm not sure if I can do the call and response since I added so much to the scripture in there. Do you still feel comfortable doing it? Let's do it. For the, word, for the word of God in Scripture, uh, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. <laughs> Not claiming my commentary was the word of God. All right, so I'll be honest. This, this week was a uh, was very uh, difficult sermon prep, right? Uh, the, the text last week, the binding of Isaac, um, there may not be a story that, from the Old Testament anyways that has more written about it than that. There are people... Uh, Soren Kierkegaard wrote an entire book trying to wrestle with that passage. There's books and books and articles written about it. I had more material than I knew what to do with to try and sort through that thing. Uh, last week's sermon was more um, sculpture uh, than anything else, right? Where you have, like, you have a giant rock and you have to start chipping away at it until you can turn it into something, right? That's what last week felt like. This week honestly feels uh, more like a blank canvas and most of my paint was gone. Um, It just didn't feel like there was that much to work with, right? It's a lot less going on in the story and it borders on the mundane, right? And it's not just because um, how I met my spouse stories are kind of like your dreams, uh, which is uh, they are mostly interesting to you and no one else. Right? You know, those kind of things where you're like, let me tell you the 10 minute, 15 minute story about how I met my wife. And in your mind, it's the most exciting tale that's ever told, and everyone else is just looking at their watch, right? Not just because those kind of stories are not necessarily all that exciting, um, but if you think about the, the, the stories we've been going through in the, the overarching narrative in Genesis, um, there is not much excitement here, right? Think about where we've been so far. We have had. In the beginning, we have had the creation of the cosmos, everything being created. We've had the breath of life breathed in to mankind after they've been formed from the dust of the ground. We've had talking snakes. We've had forbidden fruit, nudity, 
banishments, exciting stuff going on. There have been births and murders, floods and fire and brimstone and the destruction of entire towns. There have been people turning into salt pillars. There's been towers built to heaven until languages were confused. There's been a pregnant hundred-year-old. That's newsworthy, right? We've seen someone banish uh, their mistress and their firstborn son. The same person almost kill their son of promise until a magic ram appears to take their place. This is good storytelling material, right? And then you have this story. Now again, I want to say that I think Rebecca is a very remarkable person, and we're going to talk about her more next week. We're not forgetting about her. Uh, I believe she's one of the matriarchs of Genesis. But really, this story is mostly about the servant, the unnamed servant. And there's not really a whole lot of super exciting stuff going on here. It's a love story. Uh, But one of the featured characters in the love story doesn't even show up to the last couple of verses. It's It's not the classic boy meets girl. It's the classic boy's dad takes servant and tells him to go someplace to meet a girl and then present him to the son. Doesn't, there's not really many Hallmark cards for that moment. In this story, God never speaks. In this story, there's talk of an angel or a messenger, but one never shows up. Nothing supernatural in that sense happens. The main character is an unnamed servant who is just doing what he's told a promise on another man's nether regions, which is fun and exciting, but it's mostly an unremarkable situation. Everyone just does what they're supposed to do. They talk, they negotiate, they figure it out, and that's the end of the story. It even takes place at the well, which is biblically cliche for two people to meet, right? This story is honestly a little boring by the standards that have been set in the first 23 chapters of Genesis. It's very grounded. It's very earthy. It just kind of feels like the story that your grandfather may tell you that really wasn't all that interesting. Not one of the good ones, but one of the other ones, right? And what ended up standing out most to me about this this week as I struggled to figure out what am I going to talk about after last week's uh, thrill ride (laughs) for me is that this story, which has been passed down, we're still talking about millennia later. What stood out to me is how unremarkable it is. And as much as I love heroic stories of all varieties, I like the superheroes, I like the supernatural, that stuff is fun to talk about, I honestly find comfort in stories like this because they kind of more resemble my life. Now, I don't mean to indicate that, I, that one day my father took an unnamed servant and had them go meet my cousin at some random well, and then Sarah and I have been married ever since. We are not related, to my knowledge. But there are two things that are very true of my life. And I say the first of these particularly, but both of them with no sense of pity or regret whatsoever. But there are two things that are very true about my life. My life is both relatively unremarkable and I feel like I can look back across my now almost 49 years of life and see God's love and providence throughout all of it. I've never been a part of any verifiable miracles apart from just the miracles we take for granted that we're on this planet floating in the middle of the cosmos and there's life and all of these kind of things. Never had a verifiable miracle that I've been a part of. Nothing really magically supernatural. I've never had any direct verbal conversations from God or any of God's messengers in my life. Most of what I know and believe and experience about the divine comes from other people, 
other people who have just been living their lives, and other people who have loved me in all the consistent and common and unremarkable ways that real love happens in this world. I've always been pretty much average at most everything I've done. Um, I did eventually meet a girl who was way out of my league who lowered her standards enough to say yes and marry me. So I've been a part of one verifiable miracle. And we've had lots of laughs and fun and beauty and tears and loss and surprise and everything in between that comes with 20 years of marriage. We've got two great kids. They're our favorites. But we're also aware that they're pretty much just kids to everyone else. You would not plan on or even want to see my story in a holy scripture handed down for millennia. It wouldn't make for exciting reading. And again, understand that I don't say any of that like it's somehow a bad thing or even disappointing. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever had it better than me, and I'm not trying to make some grand statement. I, I genuinely believe that. I'm happy with this truth that I'm sharing with you. Uh, I don't think that the lack of jaw-dropping supernatural occurrences makes God any less present or real in my life. I look back over my life, and I see providence. Now, unlike what I was brought up to think, how I was brought up to think about that, I don't think God's a puppet master that controls everything. I don't think God has made everything happen. I'm not even one of those folks, and this is probably going to offend a couple of you, I'm not even one of those folks who says that everything happens for a reason. That's just not the way I think about things. I don't think that anything happens that God can't handle, and work with me and love me through, I don't think God is making everything happen, personally. I may be wrong about that. But I don't see anything that has happened in my life that has placed me outside of God's presence and God's help and God's love. In that sense, I've seen God's providence through it all. God's gentle, often hidden hand that works with me and often works in spite of me to help me get to wherever I'm supposed to go. And often, I have no idea it's there until I look back and see it. I'm thinking of writing a poem about footprints along those lines. I'll let you know if I finish it. This might be what I like so much about this unnamed servant and the fact that they don't give the servant a name. Because there's no thunderbolts, there's no lightning, there's no voices from heaven. There's just a guy doing what he's supposed to do. There's questions, there's guesses, there's hopes and prayers and requests, and their shots taken. He has no special skills to speak of. He has no super strength. There's no obvious divine intervention. There's just a servant, a servant who trusts in the goodness of a God and the goodness of the promise that God has made, a servant who prays that he might be a constructive part of making that promise happen in this world, a servant who acts boldly when he can, with the best information he has, with full knowledge that failure is in fact an option. He looks closely for signs of God's goodness and names them what they are when he sees them. He listens to everyone else that's involved because he knows it's not just his journey or his story. He considers their wishes, their understandings, their participation. And in the end, he thanks God for all the good things he experiences. I like that unnamed servant. And in this story, all these everyday people making the best decisions they could with the means that they have, and this is how God brings about peace and love and comfort and security in their world. And that is something I can relate to. Maybe that's a little boring, but it rings true. 
And honestly, it's hard to locate myself in those super heroic stories of the Bible sometimes because it just doesn't sound like my life. And I think that actually God, at least my life, still largely works like he does in this story. And I think we could probably do a lot worse than taking a page out of its script. What if we began to think about success, for lack of a better term, in faith and Christianity in these ways? What if we began to think about uh, success and faith in ways that are different than we think about it in all the other areas, right? I would argue it would be better for us all if we stopped thinking about success as big buildings, large followings, slick marketing and sales and influence and all these things. These same measurements that we use for every other thing that's sold in a consumeristic society, what if we stopped thinking about it in those ways? And if you are still not sold on the fact that that's a bad idea, I highly recommend that nice Hillsong documentary that they just put out recently because that will go ahead and kill whatever hope you had in that, that model. Truth is that we don't need anything else that is successful by those measurements in this world. And I can tell you the dirty secret behind all that stuff in regards to ministry. As a person who's been in professional ministry of one kind or another for 25 years now, all that stuff is way more about the ego of the person on stage than it is about accomplishing God's good work and will in the world. It's a lot more about our own egos than it is God's will done here on earth as it is in heaven, which of course is supposed to be our prayer. I think sometimes I, we, could use a refresher on how to be the common, consistent, faithful, boring followers of Christ again. And it might solve a whole lot of our problems. The world needs more unnamed servants. The world needs more people who take their commitments seriously. Maybe without the thigh grabbing, but seriously nonetheless. We need more people who remain utterly convinced of God's good intentions in this world, people who act with intent even when they might fail. Those who can act uh, in this world without bullying or bowling over those that it affects. We could use some more humble people of prayer who are keeping a close eye out for all the small signs of God's grace in this world and calling attention to them whenever we find them. We could use some more unnamed servants. Those who always point others towards the source of the goodness and love that they get to witness around them. This is what we need. The grandiose moments of jaw-dropping supernatural activity are fun to read about, and I'm sure it would be fun to experience if it ever happens. But I think faith on a day-to-day basis just looks a little different than that. I think maybe it's all a little more simple, a little more boring, and a little more beautiful. And that's okay with me. God, our prayer tonight is that we might learn a lesson from the unnamed servant in Genesis 24. The one we are still talking about even though we don't know the name. God, we confess that we are often uh, so attracted to and drawn to uh, the big and the flashy and the seemingly successful expressions of faith. We're uh, drawn towards that. Uh, by which any other measure of this world we would call a success. 
But God, we know that is not how you work in this world most of the time. That you are an incarnate God, that you are a God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made yourself nothing. That you became a human baby in this world, that you took on flesh and blood, that you walked this earth in anonymity for 90% of your life. That you showed up in the life of an everyday common person. God, may we be that kind of humble servant. Help us to remain in all the small, mundane ways every day committed to your goodness and grace and love in our own lives and in our world. God, may we make all those small, good decisions so that this world might know your love and hope a little more clearly. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things. In your name, amen.